0: Hello, welcome back to You Know What I've Been Wondering. I'm Sarah. And I'm Jane. How's it going? Uh,
1: It's going okay. Uh, I'm working very long hours right now, so I'm like, mm. I'm working yeah, seven, I get that. seven to five. Um, that is
0: long. It's a lot of hours.
1: It's fun, though, because the kids are cute and it's, I don't know, pretty, I feel like hanging out with such little people, like, time mm-hmm. kind of goes by fast and they're so like cute and excited about everything that
0: yeah that's nice you kind
1: of force yourself to be like ah all the time right right so, I, I te- so like i tend to be fine getting through the day and then i get home and i crash but luckily i'm only working four days a week so i have ample weekend time too
0: yeah recuperate. that's great that's how good. are you i'm good i have kind of a wild story so last <gasps> week um, so our roommate, Kelsey, that we've spoken about yes. is moving to Texas, but we, we might have mentioned that she she's a hamster. Hamster's name is Susan. <gasps> Susan is named after my mother. What and happened? last week I was at Kelsey's house here in Pennsylvania where we grew up and Kelsey was in the other room and I was looking at Susan who was out and about in her little, in her little cage and the top, does, the cage doesn't have a top because it's pretty deep. um and i had my hand hovering over the cage and i'm going to tell you why she did what she did later based off of kelsey's explanation but at the time i was not okay i had my hand hovering over the cage and susan is standing on top of her like a little log house and she jumps up and sinks her teeth fully around my finger like (gasps) full all locked on on my finger. My reaction was to scream and move my hand away, but she had locked onto my hand. So Susan goes flying, all and she lands. Same thing happened to my
1: hamster Nelson, and he was never the same after. He he had such a bad biting problem.
0: Anyway, he, what happened? Just she <laughs> flew across the room and landed in a trash can. I saw her oh! hit the of trash can, and she slid down the trash can. The trash can was empty thank God. And thank God it was like a big, deep, tall trash can. Otherwise I was, I was like immediately afraid. I was like, Kelsey's dogs are going to run in here. They're going to try to snatch her. (gasps) She, four seconds, like completely still longest four seconds of my life. I thought I had killed her. I was like, I just killed Kelsey's hamster. But then she pops back up and starts scurrying around. Like she was pranking me. Like she wanted to trick me. And I literally, like I screamed bloody murder. Kelsey was like, what happened? it was so scary and i just put her i picked up the trash can and i kind of dumped her back into her cage and she kind of ran around she immediately got something to eat was like wow kelsey was out of the room filling her water like it was nuts i found out i put my hand over the cage in such a way and you're supposed to put it as when your palm with your palm facing up because uh-huh. palm down mimics the claws of hamsters natural predators like birds
1: birds
0: um so she might have thought i was a bird and that's why but she like left the ground to jump up and bite me like i was my hand was not really near her i was like resting my arm on the cage to get a better look at her but my hand was not really near it was truly terrifying i like almost cried i was so afraid i was like oh my god i thought i killed kelsey's hamster kelsey was like i care about your finger more than i care about my like pet my small pet hamster i was like oh i would have I would have died, like, if I had killed Susan. I would have felt, I never would <laughs> have died It was so <laughs> horrific. Oh, my God. But the four seconds that she lay completely still, I was, that was the longest four seconds of my life. And I felt purposeful. It felt targeted. It felt like she was like, I'm going to scare her. Nah, I'm just kidding. I'm fine. And I was
1: like, ah! <laughs> Why do hamsters like to fake people out like that? I've told you about when my hamster Nelson literally went missing for like three days on an yeah. island, <laughs> and then came oh back gosh. like, "Hey!" <laughs> I was oh like, "What Lord.
0: kind of games are you playing?" It was, I like, I didn't forget about it for many days, and I kept feeling like her, like her little teeth were around my finger, like a, it had that, that phantom feeling. It was yeah. awful. That was that happened last week, and I've been thinking about it constantly ever since.
1: <laughs> Did you know that Kelsey's done. mom also uh, liked my payment to you, that was for your actual mother, but I <sighs> I called it for Susan parentheses not the hamster and Kelsey's mom saw it and liked it.
0: That's so funny! Oh my god.
1: I had a funny story at daycare today that I was, I was like, I have to tell Sarah this she will find it so funny. And now I'm trying to remember what it was. Uh, I don't think this was it, but this is another funny thing that happened to me was one of my kids today. um, And she's four asked me where, where did you get your scrunchie? And I said, (laughs) "Uh, I don't remember. And she said, Oh, well, where did you get your hair? And I went, um, I grew it from my head (laughs) and she went, Oh really? Like real, like super judgmentally. And I was like, why, where did you get your hair? And she goes, um, I had it when I was born. (laughs) Oh, excuse me.
0: Well, let's get to it. Let's get to it.
1: Oh, oh, I have another funny thing. I want to, a funny interaction with a child today. There was this mm-hmm. one kid who was the last one to get picked up. So I was sitting and and playing with like the magnetic tiles with him, and I started singing something to him. I don't remember what it was, but he looked at me and like dead face went, "You need to stop because when you sing, it hurts my ears." <laughs> oh, <laughs> and I wasn't gee. even singing loudly. I was like, my voice your breath. kind yeah. of quietly.
0: I was like, <laughs> ow. <laughs> I'm sure it's not the quality of your voice. I think it's just like a sensory thing.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure he just hears that all the time. Like, like this is what you say in response to a noise that you don't want to happen anymore. And he was just right. Like, he's singing. That's odd to me. That hurts my ears. Like, <laughs> Anyway. All right. Wow. So you asked me about a rather dark topic, mm-hmm. but one that's, you know, kind of, good to be educated on because i honestly knew like nothing about this yeah i, knew I don't that it know happened and it mm-hmm. came up recently uh when people were uh, i just heard it on the news that the u.s is in fact the only country to have dropped a nuclear weapon yeah um and i was like oh you're right
0: mm-hmm.
1: but again i didn't know um much about it so yeah, it's the we-
0: anniversary of this happening like in a couple days isn't it um me. it's august 6th okay yeah
1: is the so, anniversary so it's in a couple weeks yeah um next month early next month mm-hmm. but that brings me to in fact my first bullet point which is on august 6 1945 during world war ii which lasted from 1939 to 1945 mm-hmm. an american b-29 bomber dropped the world's first deployed atomic bomb over the japanese city of hiroshima the explosion wiped out ninety percent of the city and immediately killed eighty thousand people.
0: Oh my Tens God. of thousand
1: more would later die of radiation exposure.
0: Jesus, that's so many.
1: It's nuts. Three days later, a second B-29 dropped on another dropped another A-bomb on Nagasaki, killing an estimated of forty thousand people, and they had a similar delayed mm-hmm. um mortality rate be- due to um, nuclear uh, radiation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On August 15th, Japan's Emperor Hirohito announced his country's unconditional surrender in world-, in world War II in a radio address, citing the devastating power of a new and most cruel bomb. So, overall, uh, the intention of these bombs was to end World War II and to get right. Japan to surrender. Mm-hmm. Now let's rewind a little bit from all that. Let's go back mm-hmm. to like the, the entire history of this. So even before the outbreak of the war in 1939, a group of American scientists, many of whom were refugees from fascist regimes in Europe, oh. became very concerned that Nazi Germany was researching how to build their own nuclear bombs. So oh. the beginning of the U.S.'s nuclear technology really was in reactionary like self-defense sort of like let's have this just in case Germany has it right which I also don't know if I understand that logic because if we get like nuked by Germany like we can't nuke back like <laughs> aren't we gonna
0: be dead? I guess it depends on what part of, Germ- of which part of america we got nuked like germany would have to know where our nuclear bomb is to stop us from nuking them
1: that's true and you also like i feel like i think of like nuclear bombs as like oh this will end the world or it will end a country but really it's like it's only got a certain mile radius yeah so it's like a city thing yeah um as it was the case for hiroshima and nagasaki yeah. In 1940, the U.S. government began funding its own atomic weapons development program. This was run by both the Office of Scientific Research and Development and the U.S. War Department once the U.S. entered World War II. Okay. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers was tasked with superheading, spearheading the construction of vast facilities for a top secret program. The program was codenamed the Manhattan Project after the engineering corps, Manhattan district. Yes. Over the next several years, the program scientists worked on producing the key materials for nuclear fission, uranium 235 and plutonium 239 bombs, essentially. Mm -hmm. The materials were sent to Los Alamos, New Mexico, where a team led by J. Robert Oppenheimer Mm -hmm. worked to turn these materials into workable atomic bombs which I've heard that name Oppenheimer so many times in like, as like a inventor of sorts. And I I feel like I was, and I feel like I've heard him in connection with the atomic bomb. This was the first time that I was like, Oh yes, yes, yes.
0: Yeah. And same with the Manhattan project. Like I always know the Manhattan project is something important, but I can never quite remember what it is, but it's, yeah, it was the program that built this bomb.
1: I always confuse it with, there was some big project in Boston that I forget what it was called but it was really just to redesign the city and it's like streets and it's bridges and stuff. Oh, it was like an actual infrastructure project. There's a section of it um, talking in, in the Boston museum of science and it's got some name like the Boston project or something. And I always confuse the two. Right. (laughs) Very different. (laughs) Very different. On July 16th, 1945, the Manhattan project held its first successful test of an atomic device, a plutonium bomb at the Trinity test site at Alamogordo, New Mexico. Okay. By the time of the Trinity test, the allied powers had already defeated Germany in Europe. Mhm. Japan, however, had vowed to fight until the bitter end in the Pacific, despite clear indications that they had little chance of winning the war. Right. In fact, as early as 1944, it was widely considered common knowledge that Japan was definitely the underdog in the situation and had no chance of winning. Mhm. Um, interestingly, Between mid-April of 1945 and mid-July of 1945, which was the first three months of Harry Harry Truman's presidency, Mm -hmm. um, all of the Allied troops killed by by Japanese forces in the three years of fighting in the Pacific, half of those killed were in that three-month period. Oh, wow. And this is just to show that the Japanese strategy was really obviously becoming... Oh, we're definitely losing this war. Let's kill as many enemies as we can as we go down. Yeah, like we're not going down fight without fighting. Right. Um. So the general view of Japan was that it was going down, and it was aware it was going to lose. And in late July, the Allied forces put forth the Potsdam Declaration, which called for Japan to surrender. And they threatened in this declaration prompt and utter destruction if they refused. Mm-hmm. The Japanese government rejected the declaration. So at the time, there was a plan in the works which was codenamed Operation Downfall. There were so many code names in this, and I, yeah. I don't love what I'm researching, but I also was like, ooh, code names. Yeah. <laughs> um, Operation Downfall. Next door.
0: What a good show. <laughs>
1: Operation Downfall was a United States plan where they would continue the regular bombing of Japan that they were already doing, but they were also planning a large-scale, massive invasion into Japan. Right. The plan was favored by General Douglas MacArthur on top of a lot of other military commanders. That being said, they also warned President Truman that if they went forward with Operation Downfall, there would most likely be a resulting U.S. casualty rate of up to one million people. Oh, wow. Yeah, they thought the war would stretch on for a very long time and they would send in a lot of U.S. troops, and yes, they would kill a lot of Japanese people, but in the process, there would be many American casualties. U.S. casualties, casualties, yeah. So, um, as a sort of plan... B, to attempt to limit the deaths of Americans, they discussed putting the atomic bomb that had been recently been created by the Manhattan Project to use. But again, it was like a, we don't really want to do that. It's plan B, but we have that as an option if we really think we don't want to kill this many Americans. Yeah. And the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, General Dwight Eisenhower, and a number of Manhattan Project scientists told President Truman that they had moral reservations about using the bomb that they created.
0: Mm, Yeah.
1: So even the creators of the bomb didn't think they should use it. And I think it's probably a case that these are the individuals that are putting in all of their time and research into this thing and they have thought out the moral consequences. Yeah. What would actually happen if they used this thing they were creating. Whereas to the other governmental people, it was like, oh, we have this major weapon. Like they haven't put a lot of thought into it.
0: Right, right.
1: And it's also the debate about, oh, do we kill a lot of people over a long period of time, many of which will be Americans, or do we kill still a lot of people, but not as many all at once and just get it over with? Yeah. Um, Ultimately, Truman decided that using an atomic bomb would cause less American casualties and it would end the war quickly. Um, Truman's Secretary of State, James Burns, told him that the bomb's devastating power would not only end the war, but also put the U.S. in a dominant position to determine the course of the post-war world. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, this was the decision that was gone with, even though it was not favored when it was first put forth.
0: Is James Burns who Mr. Burns, a post-electric play, is named after? Or is Mr. Burns a character from The Simpsons?
1: Mr. Burns is a character from The Simpsons. It's also spelled differently. I'm pretty sure that Mr. Burns is with a U. And this is B-Y-R-N-S.
0: Mm, okay. Yeah, it is. Never mind. Yeah. No, it's fine.
1: Uh, it is an interesting coincidence, though.
0: Yeah, that is an interesting if
1: coincidence. If you have put these two together.
0: Oh, Mr. Burns on The Simpsons is a wealthy owner of a, sig- of a Springfield nuclear power plant. So they are, it, uh, he's named after that, Burn. That's a different <laughs> spelling.
1: Well, I don't know if he owns... This, I don't know if this guy's an owner of a nuclear problem, but he's the Secretary of State, and he, like, supported the bomb.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm sure that that yeah, was connect, a that connected. a connection. Yeah, the Simpsons writers are smart yeah. enough to yeah. make a direct yeah. reference.
1: Once the decision to bomb Japan had been arrived at, they had to choose which cities they would target. The list of potential target cities included um, Kokura, Hiroshima, Yokohama, Niigata, and Kyoto, and... There's this sort of unconfirmed rumor slash story, although I'm sure parts of it you can confirm, that originally the two targets that were chosen were Hiroshima and Kyoto. Okay. But the U.S. Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, had in fact spent his honeymoon in Kyoto and he just had sort of a nostalgic uh, enjoyment of that area and a fondness for it. So he convinced the group not to target Kyoto and to switch to a different city.
0: Did you know that same reason is why um, Hitler did not bomb the Ponte Vecchio in Florence? Right. He, he thought it was beautiful and was like, you can bomb whatever part of Italy you want, but you cannot touch, like, certain parts of Florence.
1: Oh, yeah. he honeymooned there? or He he, he didn't married? honeymoon
0: there, but no. Uh, he was married. Or he had he had a girlfriend. They, like, committed uh. to at the same time. Um, but he had visited Italy and thought it was beautiful and was like, mm. yeah, don't bomb there.
1: It's it's just so dumb how, like, a passing whim of a man in power can change the lives yeah. of so many people.
0: It's true. And it was, the, I think he did the same thing in um, Krakow in Poland. Mm. Like, Old City in Krakow was preserved for, like, visual reasons. It's really, it's really odd. Stuff like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Before the attacks on Japan, the U.S. Air Force airdropped pamphlets throughout Japan warning of what they had already said of the prompt and utter destruction of Japan and said that that was on its way and people who argue in support of the bombing say that these pamphlets constituted a fair warning for the citizens of Hiroshima and Nagasaki to flee. Um, and that it's basically their own fault that they didn't. Now, one, this is the worst victim shaming I've ever heard. Yeah, Uh, that's (laughs) terrible.
0: Like, you just killed a bunch of
1: people. Don't blame them. I know. And two, these pamphlets did not specify that the destruction coming from the U.S. was going to be a nuclear attack, and it didn't specify where in Japan it would be. So... There's what? literally no way that Japanese just, citizens like, could have Leave
0: Japan? Eaten. Oh my gosh, that's so oh. frustrating.
1: I mean, maybe, but also, like, where are you going to go? Like, you can't go right. to the U.S., you're not going to be treated fairly there. They couldn't
0: go to China. China was, like, in the middle of its crazy communist regime, I think. Or maybe not yet. I don't know. They couldn't go to China if they don't get along. Um, that's nuts. That's so terrible.
1: It, it's just a dumb argument. <laughs> Hiroshima uh, at the time was a manufacturing center about 500 miles from Tokyo and it was selected as the first target. Now I will say that um, today it has sort of been rebuilt and is now again a center of manufacturing for Japan. So it's and not like... they
0: were able to rebuild it. Yes.
1: Yeah. I'm sure there were many years of, the, of work to get back to that but um, I think that was one of the reasons why this place was chosen.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So the U.S. had a base on the Pacific island of And the bombs were sent there. The first bomb was a 9,000 pound uranium-235 bomb. The bomb was codenamed Little Boy, and it was loaded onto a B-29 bomber plane called the Enola Gay, which was named after the mother of the pilot of that plane, Colonel Paul Tibbets. At 8.15 a.m., the bomb was dropped by parachute. It exploded 2,000 feet above Hiroshima in a blast equal to twelve to 15,000 tons of TNT. Wow. And it instantly destroyed destroyed five square miles of the city. It was expected that this would elicit Japan's immediate surrender, which technically it did not. But uh, they only waited three days to drop the next one. Mm-hmm. Which then, after they dropped the second one, it was another like six days until they actually surrendered. So I'm confused by like how long they considered too long to wait for a surrender. Yeah, I think they just like I had. I know. These bombs I guess it would, and they were yeah.
0: I think it would depend too, like if they expected that the leaders, like, I think when you have destruction on that sort of scale, that they expected the leaders to like react in a certain amount of time but it also could be that the leaders didn't react in that time because of the level of destruction that like they had focused all their efforts on rescue that like they weren't Mm -hmm. thinking about diplomacy necessarily that much when you Mm -hmm. have destruction on that kind of scale
1: i also it it dawned on me while i was um researching this that at first i thought well why didn't they go for tokyo and then i was like oh you don't want to get the central city where the government is because then there is no government to surrender to you and you just leave a country in chaos. Yeah. That doesn't help you to control that country.
0: Who knows? Yeah.
1: So on August 9th, because they did not receive a surrender, um, Major Charles Sweeney flew his plane called, it's boxcar, but it's not spelled like B-O-X-C-A-R. It's spelled B-O-C-K-S-K-C-A-R.
0: Interesting,
1: um, but also it came from the U.S. base in and for the second time in this story, Nagasaki was not the intended target. Um, he was supposed to take the bomb, which was codenamed Fat Man, to the city of Kokura, but as he was mm-hmm. flying there, he saw that the city was under a thick layer of clouds, so visibility was bad. So Sweeney so decided to initiate his backup plan and backup plan and fly to Nagasaki. So I thought it was just like really eerie that twice in this story Nagasaki wasn't the intended target. And then and it ended some up. little yeah. detail happened that caused them to switch to there.
0: Yeah. Like, that's uh, so
1: bad. That's so weird. So creepy. Yeah. So at eleven oh two, the bomb, again codenamed Fat Man, was dropped. And it was considered to be a more powerful bomb than Little Boy. Uh, it weighed nearly ten thousand pounds, whereas the other one was nine thousand. And it was built to produce a 22-kiloton blast. The bomb, codenames Little Boy and Fat Man, are apparently references to the 1941 film The Maltese Falcon, um, Mm -hmm. which the creator of these bombs, Robert Serber, was a fan of. Um, Mm -hmm. This theory is, like, kind of true. We know Fat Man is a reference to that movie because a character is referred to that several times. But the character that they think Little Boy was named after is never actually called Little Boy in that film. Mm-hmm. So uh, people think Fat Man... What I think is the case is that Fat Man was chosen in homage to that film, and then Little Boy was called was what the other bomb was called because it was just smaller than the other one. Yeah. So they're like, well, this one's the Fat Man, and this one's the Little Boy. Right. Um, however, because of the topography of Nagasaki, uh, being that it was, it's made up of narrow valleys between mountains. Mm -hmm. Um, the bomb was interrupted by the mountain range around it, and it didn't Mm -hmm. have as great of, like, an impact diameter that it was, that it could have, that it was capable of. Uh, so because of this, the destruction was two point square miles, whereas Mm -hmm. the one that was smaller and less powerful had a five mile, um, right, five square mile. Destruction zone. So that was like, I guess, kind of one way that it was made not as bad as it could be. But still, like, I'm sure that also because you're surrounded by mountains, there's probably a lot of like earth, like, what's the not mudslide, um, avalanches. I'm sure there's other geographical things that you're not going. And again, no one got out easy here. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Um. So at noon on August fifteenth, six days later. Um, Emperor Hirohito, as I said, announced the surrender, and that day was celebrated in the U.S. and other allied nations as VJ Day, which stands for Victory in Japan. Mm -hmm. The formal surrender agreement was not signed until September 2nd aboard the U.S. battleship Missouri anchored in Tokyo Bay. Mm -hmm. Here are just a couple more facts to add into the group. Um, The bomb blast in Hiroshima was of such intensity that it permanently burned the shadows of people and objects into the ground they're called hiroshima shadows and they're really eerie and creepy and some have faded or have been destroyed over time but some have been preserved and put in museums um one i kept seeing online is literally of a little girl jump roping and i can't tell if it's real or not or if it's mm-hmm. just like i don't know like an artistic uh um, yeah addition to the group but all of the shadows are literally of people going about their daily lives um mm-hmm. it's creepy and some of them are of objects um yeah
0: very it's just a very
1: odd scientific phenomena that created this uh, creepy thing that's very haunting in my opinion um one of the few buildings left standing after the blast in hiroshima was uh, the hiroshima prefectural industrial Promotion Hall, which was a multifunctional multifunctional building built in 1915 that was used for research and design consultation, but now is called the Atomic Bomb Dome because the top of the building is this dome, Um, and it's also called the um, Genbaku Dome, and it is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site and it is part of the Hiroshima Peace Memorial, Uh, and it's this it's this building that is often gone to for. you know, celebrations of peace and memorial, um, festivals and things. Um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki are now both sites that very often draw peace activists. Uh, Hiroshima, as of now, has returned to being a thriving manufacturing city, as we said at the beginning. In May of 2016, President Barack Obama became the first sitting U.S. President to travel to Hiroshima he laid yeah, I was wreath-
0: about to ask that. I like vaguely mm-hmm. remember this.
1: Yeah, he laid a wreath during a ceremony at Peace Memorial Park with Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and greeted bomb sur- uh, and greeted survivors of the bombing. Now, mm-hmm. thank goodness this presidential trip was planned for May of 2016 and yeah. not any time in 2017 because I like from what I read of this like of this um, experience. Obama had at Hiroshima is very respectful. It was, you know, what you would hope from, yeah, the country that did these horrible bombings to this country, going to like greet and do a gesture of peace. Like I cannot picture Trump doing this in a way that he
0: wouldn't. He wouldn't helpful, respectful.
1: Yeah, (sighs) Yeah, you're right. He probably wouldn't go. Every year on August sixth, sixth, church bells ring at 8:15 a.m., which is the Time, the exact moment that the bomb was set off and a day of remembrance ceremonies are celebrated and there is a hauntingly beautiful Toro Hagashi festival where hundreds of lanterns are floated down the Motoyasu River in front of the atomic bomb dome uh, so it, it's it's definitely memorialized in a way that is honorific and is mm-hmm. you know big and beautiful but not mm-hmm. like woohoo we're having fun it's a very right Somber place. Somber, yeah. yeah. Um, many historians believe that the bombings were a necessary action for the U.S. to officially end World War II, but there are historians that say that the Soviet Union's unexpected entrance into the war played a, a bigger role in getting Japan to surrender. So there is some argument in the historical community over whether or not this action was actually necessary. Um, I don't know... Um, as much as I should about the time and how badly the U.S. felt they needed to get out of the war as quickly as possible. Yeah. So it's kind of hard for me to have an opinion on that point. I'd like, like, out of context, I'd be like, yeah, it's never necessary to do such violence. But again, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, You know, again, as an outside observer, I hate it. Bombings led to the deaths of at least 150,000 to 246,000 people. Um, the Hiroshima bombing caused ninety thousand to one hundred and sixty-six thousand of those deaths, and Nagasaki was the other sixty to eighty thousand. Interestingly, neither the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima nor the bomb on Nagasaki was the most destructive World War II bombing attack on Japan. Oh, yeah. In nineteen, 19- in on March fifth of nineteen forty-five, there was another attack from the U.S., codenamed Operation Meeting House, which was a um, more typical bombing attack. It wasn't a nuclear bomb. air ra- An air
0: raid. Yeah.
1: Like fighter pilots dropping. It was a, a napalm attack carried out by 334 B-29 bombers. Um, and it was a, the U.S. troops just firebombed Tokyo. And mm. it caused, it killed more than 100,000 people. And several times that people were injured. Oh, so, wow when we're talking about these horrible, like, yes, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were horrible, but, like, let's not forget about all of World War II. I think it's the overall right. point of bringing this up. Right. That it wasn't just these two horrible days. It was Right. It's you know, not like
0: the U.S. had two bad judgment calls, you know? Yeah. Like, this was, up. A- this is a part of what was happening in yeah. the world at the time.
1: Yeah. And uh, my last two facts are kind of uplifting, or, well, not uplifting, but, you know, something to, to- make you think happy (laughs) thoughts i don't know um oleander is the official flower of the city of hiroshima because it was the first plant to blossom again after the atomic blast oh kind of sweet yeah and then in hiroshima's peace memorial park there is a flame lit called the peace flame and it was lit in 1964 it has remained lit to this day burning continuously for 56 years yeah, it, I've heard of this. Mm, it sounds super it, cool. It will remain lit until all nuclear bombs on the planet are destroyed and the planet is free from the threat of nuclear destruction.
0: I think that's beautiful.
1: So, you know, it's something to hope for and it's very sweet yeah. that um rather than coming out of this horrible, horrible attack, that the country isn't in a, that Hiroshima isn't a place of anger, it's a place of yeah. fighting for peace.
0: It's a place, yeah, of memorial and remembrance yeah. and things like that. Yeah, Definitely. and trying to keep it so that
1: it, this never happens again.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of um, a lot of Poland following World War II as well. Like mm. you would think that they would be a really angry community, considering how many Jewish poles and non-Jewish poles were murdered, mm-hmm. um, and how much their country and government was destroyed. But it's not, it's like it's not an angry place mm-hmm. at all, which I think is a testament to the people there. And their values, which is kind of hard for us as Americans to imagine because Americans are very hot-headed in general and very uh-huh. righteous, you know. Uh, yeah. So I think it's cool to, like, reflect on people who in their culture are not like that. Like, I think that's really important. Yeah. Now I can hear the rain. <laughs> <laughs> is it
1: nice or is it distracting? It's, like,
0: nice, but I just want to vocalize it so that our listeners know, uh-huh, like, uh-huh, oh, uh-huh. there's rain. Our middle segment
1: this mm-hmm. is sort of thematically fun for us so oh, great i've been thinking a lot lately about how we first started uh this podcast we heavily used reddit for our middle segment mm-hmm. now i mm-hmm. still have a lot of reservations about reddit um mm-hmm. but you know there's some cool things that are posted on there so when i was looking for something to talk about for our middle segment i just like i popped into the r slash too afraid to ask um thread and yeah. i f- at the very top of the thread i was pleased to read covid19 denialism including anti-mask rhetoric will result in a permanent ban citing harm or risk of others this is oh an un- that's great yeah this is an unappealable ban <gasps> and i was like good for you reddit like good job reddit <laughs> taking down the deniers And so I googled, like, Reddit coronavirus, and I found this article about, uh, the title of the article is How Reddit's Coronavirus Community Became a Global Lifeline with the subtitle Redditors Share How They're Coping with the Coronavirus Pandemic. We also take an in-depth look at r slash coronavirus which has fast become one of the most comprehensive up-to-date and reliable sources of information for this constantly developing global story i was shocked this is wild it's this amazing thing about how because you know news particularly in a couple countries, you know, maybe our own, um, Mm -hmm. is not necessarily the most reliable source for what's what's going on from place to place to place. So Redditors have really used this platform to be like, okay, this is what's going on in my city. Um, This is what local governments are are, um, doing to deal with it. This is how we're handling it. This is how successful it's being. All these things. And it's, and people have used it to share like uplifting things to be like, hey, other people who are dealing with the pandemic, here's some things that make you feel better. Here's some tips. Like, it's this crazy, like, support network almost, mm-hmm. which is so sweet. And this, I thought, was reminiscent of a story that I heard on Samantha B um, on Full Frontal, where she interviewed this teenage boy who, um, was raised by anti-vaxxers, but he got himself medically emancipated and got himself vaccinated. Oh! And she asked him why he did that. And he said, because I went on Reddit and I asked people if vaccines were good or bad. And the people of Reddit explained it to me. And oh it, my God. like taught me all about why I should be vaccinated. And, it, and they encouraged me and helped me through this process to get help me get vaccinated. So I just was like, suddenly bombarded with all these positive things that can come from reddit and again i don't think reddit is a singular thing i think it's a it's like one specific platform of the internet at large which can be used for bad things and it can be used for good and i just wanted to focus yeah. on the good let's not forget the bad yeah definitely. and let's work to get rid of that
0: like, Yeah. even just the
1: other day i was like i wonder if there's like an online thing for um dating in this pandemic and tips for things like that. And then I realized, oh my gosh, that's how incels started. Yeah. (laughs) Is that you can't trust some people with the internet. Uh,
0: It's true. It's
1: true. So, but anyway, so I looked up, I I literally Googled, um, uplifting things to have come from Reddit and I found r slash uplifting news. And I just wanted to read a couple of the fun, nice headlines that Reddit is just like, you know, spreading around to make people's days better. Um, the first one is one that is, has been widely talked about on the news today, and that is that New York City reports no COVID deaths in 24 yeah. hours for the first time
0: I'm so since happy. this whole thing
1: started. Um, the second one is the number of undernourished people in India has declined by 60 million in over a decade, according to a UN report. Um, this one also is on the news today. Trump administration backs down on restrictions for international students the first covid vaccine has been tested in the us and is poised for final testing which uh, that's a whole other thing i don't think that's like oh it's ready because i i've heard that it might be expensive and it it's going to be a struggle before it's ready for the populace Mm -hmm. um 25 years after returning to yellowstone wolves have helped stabilize the ecosystem uh pakistan meets u.n climate change goal a decade ahead of deadline um a COVID nineteen Mitzvah, um, Orthodox Jews donate blood plasma by the thousands.
0: Yay, that's awesome.
1: Yeah, um, California condors return to Sequoia National Park for the first time in fifty years. Which did oh you teach me about those? Weren't they in one of your trivia things?
0: Uh, yeah, I t- not California condors. The Andean oh. condor is the largest bird yeah. in the world. Um, that's why I talked about it. Um, France's health workers given pay rises worth. Eight billion euros.
1: I'm, n- I'm not sure. France
0: is on the euro, so probably. Well, it's
1: I, it's the uh, it's not the euro symbol. It's the like C with the lines. Maybe that is the euro symbol? That's but the isn't the euro, euro symbol, symbol like the E. Yeah, no, yeah. that's well, the pound is the E. <laughs> uh, for... Let's only do a couple more. These I don't want to take too long. But, um, wife took a job as a dishwasher at the assisted living facility where her husband is a resident, so she could see him during the pandemic. <gasps> that's oh that's such a sweet
0: story that's one of the things my grandmother. But it breaks my heart that she has to do that because well we that's one just, of the, like take care of each other so that she could see her husband
1: i know well that's one of the things that's my grandmother is struggling with right now is because she wants to be with my grandfather as much as she possibly can but right now the assistant living facility isn't letting non-residents inside the building and she's not a right. resident yet so right. i mean what my cousin and my aunt did in one of his first days that they were there there is they made a bunch of big signs that said like hey grandpa how are you and they like went outside his window and held them up which yeah. was cute but she can't do that like
0: right that's
1: too difficult. and also she can't figure out how like it, it's just a lot um yeah. but I don't know. anyway so my overall point is that there are really sweet things that have resulted from reddit not just in cells and other things like that like there are a lot of people spreading hate on this community but it was just really nice to see that there are people that are actively trying to combat that and spread some happiness and yeah, good that knowledge nice.
0: that's very nice i think that's yeah. very sweet i agree with you um let's transition and talk about hospitals because <laughs> i guess we should all know more about hospitals <gasps> right? the pandemic one of my
1: students today sorry this is related but a tangent we got these like um, magnetic doll things that you can put different outfits on them and we have like a doctor outfit and uh, a firefighter outfit and a superhero outfit and she was playing with one of them today and she put on like an all doctor outfit like doctor Mm -hmm. like a dr scrubs and stethoscope and Anyway, it looked like a doctor from, like, the neck down. But then she took the superhero mask and she put it on
0: the doll's face and went, because doctors are heroes, too. That's really cute. I was like, that that got me. (laughs) So, hospitals. Hospitals are actually ancient establishments. Early hospitals emerged from ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia, my favorite ancient cultures. In these cultures... (laughs) We love Mesopotamia. I do. In these cultures, temples and priests who performed healing duties um, used part of the temple compounds to treat illnesses. Early surgical practice dates back to 2000 BCE. Most notably, they were doing C-sections and boiled removal. Gross. Um, I know
1: C-sections are like a necessary thing and they're safe now, but old-timey C-sections make me anxious. Yeah,
0: yeah in ancient greece temples devoted to healing gods served similar hospital functions where people could come and go to receive health care at the dawn of urbanism so city building hospitals Mm -hmm. became important to establish containment areas for diseases as they spread more quickly they were doing this in like fifth century ce they were like yeah let's contain all the diseased people in one area which is super smart In the late 6th and 5th centuries BCE, the Achaemenid Achaemenid Persians, that's how you say it, established an early teaching hospital in Egypt. Again, this is BCE. During the Roman period, structures known as valetudinaria were secular facilities devoted to healthcare of soldiers and gladiators. Um, And then it started, and then we entered the Christian period, CE, and by late 4th, 5th century CE, Christian leaders had passed edicts to build dedicated hospitals separate from religious temples. So this is when we saw the transition of hospitals from being um, uh, pagan establishments to Christian establishments. But even from the beginning, hospitals have always had a religious undertaking because before there were doctors, they were like, priests and healers and things like that that were very spiritually connected well it kind of makes
1: sense that like religion if if interpreted correctly um really calls for taking care of other people and back before you have doctors like who's going to take care of the sick is the people right who want i mean i'm about to talk assortment. about it
0: I'm about to talk about why this specifically applies to christian people but also back then like they believed that like healing happened through god so you mm. like only god had the power to heal you because like this yeah. wasn't science based so of course it's the yeah. religious leaders that had to take care of you you know because it was like literally in god's hands was the idea um, this So Christians sort of taking over the religious temples um, or taking over hospitals away from religious temples was deeply motivated by Christian interests in following New Testament teachings on healing because Jesus, after all, was a healer. And this was a really big pillar of his beliefs. was that like <laughs> oh, yeah. to heal and take care of your neighbor. The hospital in Constantinople, as we know, which is now Istanbul, Istanbul the is one of the first known hospital buildings. Um, the first true known teaching hospital was the Academy of Gondashapu in what is now Southwest Iran. It was established by the Sassanid Persians in the in fifth century c e. Groups of medical scholars who had been banned by the Byzantine Empire for being Nestorian Christians, I don't know as opposed to what other type of Christians, but Nestorian Christians were removed from Byzantine Empire, um, came to Shapur as refugees, and they founded an academy with devoted facilities for healing and surgery, but also an academy that would teach future doctors. So this is the first time that we saw doctors being apprenticed to be doctors and not like priests or healers. mm mm-hmm. Early concepts of anatomy were also developed here and real scholarship in the medical field with an associated medical facility. So not only were they going to the medical facility for needs, but they were learning directly in it. Um, By 6th and 7th century CE, the institution likely became the most important medical center in the world. The academy attracted physicians from much of the ancient world, including India and China. Medical students were required to work closely with their educators, and they became apprenticed in the practice while working in the hospital. But this academy eventually fell to disrepair with the Muslim conquest of this area. Their knowledge and training was transferred to Baghdad and that city became the new center for medical education. And I think there's a lot of stereotypes about people from Southeast Asia, like needing to be doctors or scientists. And that is a stereotype. But I do think that comes from the fact that the earliest hospitals and the earliest established um, sort of medical practices did come from that part of the world. Yeah, so their culturally practice,
1: medicine right. is important to them, Yeah, you
0: know? exactly their practices were incorporated with Indian medicine because of the proximity of Baghdad to India. Uh, they built lecture rooms, pharmacies and libraries, along with their hospitals. So we're seeing them become full medical campuses from the seventh to 12th centuries. Hospitals were established throughout the Middle East, including in Cairo and Damascus. Again, we love Egypt. While hospitals became affiliated with Islamic teaching and instructions in the Middle East, Christian and Jews were also active in the medical work there. Um, They were mostly there as like crusaders or missionaries. Um, And... Jews obviously have been prolific in that area for many, many years. Um, They were also active in that medical work. Um, The doctors and medical students began to also make rounds in that idea of like, oh, you have a patient and you kind of leave them for a while and then you walk around and check on them. And examine patients closely after treatment instead of just stitching them up and sending them away. We saw forms of aftercare here. Mm -hmm. At this time, the concept of medical records for patients was developed. I want to, again, like we are not even in like the thousands yet. Like I'm still (laughs) talking about like 900, you know. Doctors would record patient information and the results of treatments as they visited patients before and after treatment. Again, we're we're talking about recording symptoms, recording side effects, like really important stuff here. Surgery was also practiced where medical students could observe and medical books were written about surgical practice and anatomy to be passed on. Again, this idea of teaching really was founded in the Middle East. The development of the pharmacy was also first established by Middle East doctors as a separate science of medicine in the ninth century CE. And it was its own department that was affiliated with hospitals and medical departments. Um, This development recognized the importance of pharmacology as a separate science requiring specialized knowledge that would also work along with doctors. So they realized that doctors and pharmacists could not be the same people because you just simply couldn't like have all that information so that there needed to be people trained specifically for pharmacology. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and Europe, around the same time, hospitals were even more closely tied to religious institutions and and the Catholic Church specifically. Monks and priests would often work and run these institutions where they had to train in medicine and religious knowledge. Monks and priests all kind of had special trades, and so one of them could be medicine. Mm -hmm. So some would be trained in medicine, some would be trained in like interpreting the Bible, Um, but they all came from monks and priests and religious houses this relation like call the midwife i know again that's
1: still like years and years later but yeah it's a it's a group of nuns that are midwives
0: <laughs> it's the same thing yeah this relationship established the foundation of religious hospitals today um jeffrey blaney who is a historian likened the catholic church and its activities during the middle ages to an early version of a welfare state this is a quote from him It conducted hospitals for the old and orphanage for the young, hospices for the sick of all ages, places for the lepers, and hostels or inns where pilgrims could buy a cheap bed and a meal. It was very common for monks and clerics to practice medicine and medical students in northern European universities often also took mighty holy orders. Uh, Medieval hospitals had a strong religious Christian ethos and were, in the words of historian of medicine Roy Porter, quote, religious foundations through and through after a period of decline um, in the holy roman empire uh emperor charlemagne main guy um decreed that hospitals should be attached to a cathedral and a monastery and that became like an edict throughout the holy roman empire which at the time even though it was just at the end of a period of decline was still very very large if you know anything about charlemagne (laughs) um really big monasteries (laughs) of this era were very diligent in the study of medicine um and as were convents, Hildegard of Bingen, which I know you know some about. I um, love Hildegard. (laughs) Yeah, we saw a musical about her. She was a doctor of the church and is among the most distinguished of medieval Catholic women scientists. Thank you for the ladies. Although, in addition,
1: didn't make me love her. I loved her before I saw the.
0: Well, she wasn't a perfect person. And then I was Um, like, oh,
1: you're kind of (laughs) strange.
0: She's very strange, but that's fine. Um, In addition to her theological works, Hildegard also wrote Physica, which is a text on the natural scientists, as well as Cause et Cure, which is causes and cures. Hildegard Mm -hmm. was well known for healing powers, um, which involved actual practical implications of tincture, herbs, and precious stones, as opposed to like.
1: I'm sorry. I'm confused Hildegard with the character that um, Grace McLean played. <laughs> yes, a different no, person. She was, yeah, okay, different. Yeah, again, still not perfect, but better.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. sorry. Um, no, it's okay. So even though she was like a deeply spiritual person and she did have spiritual practices in her medicine, like the it, there's proof that the tinctures, herbs, and precious stones that she used like actually had medicinal purposes um, mm-hmm. and were medicinally successful. Most monasteries would offer shelter for pilgrims and an infirmary for sick monks, um, while separate hospitals were founded for the public. So monasteries were meant to take in outsiders and they established hospitals for locals and civilians. Mm-hmm. Crusaders also established several new traditions of Catholic medical care in the places where they conducted the crusades. The famous Knights nice hospitalier arose as a group of individuals associated with an um. A Amalfatean hospital in Jerusalem, so an Italian hospital, um, which was built to provide care for poor, sick, or injured pilgrims to the Holy Land. So it was a hospital sp- sp- built specifically for other crusaders, but also people seeking the Holy Land in Jerusalem, which is cool. I don't love the crusades, but that's yeah. nice. <laughs> um, Catholic scientists in Europe, um, many of whom were clergymen, made a number of important discoveries which aided the development of modern science and medicine. Catholic women were among the first female professors of medicine. Um, Some include Trotula of Salerno um, and Dorothea Bucca, who was the chair of medicine and philosophy at the University of Bologna. Again, this is in the medieval times. But the Protestant Reformation led to the development of secular hospitals. Thank you, Martin Luther. During the Reformation, hospitals that had previously been supported by the Catholic Church lost their funding and support. In England, the loss of support for hospitals led many citizens to demand that the government take control of the the hospitals and make them public. And this began the process of government-supported, and then eventually, when people were upset with government support, private hospitals, which is kind of the endless cycle. Soon, hospital care began to be really different between Catholic and Protestant states. Protestant hospitals were more secular in the approach to medicine and healthcare, um, so they were basing their healthcare around science as opposed to religious belief, um, which is going to be really important later. Protestant hospitals uh, is also where we saw the beginning of nursing as a separate branch of healthcare, care um, mm-hmm. in the late 16th and 17th century In Catholic hospitals nuns were the nurses and those practices were considered very tied together. Mm-hmm. The Spanish and Portuguese empires were largely responsible for spreading the Catholic faith um, and their philosophy regarding healthcare to South and Central America, where the ter- church established substantial hospital networks. Almost the entire hospital network of South and Central America that still exists today came from the Spanish and Portuguese empire. The Catholic hospitals were established in the modern US prior to the Revolutionary War. Um, The first was most likely Charity Hospital, which was in New Orleans, and it was established around 1727, so it would have been a French Catholic hospital. By the 18th century, secular hospitals were found in many parts of Protestant Europe. This led to the idea that hospitals should be separate from church institutions, and they also started a wave where doctors were no longer required to have religious and medical training. So it took until 18th century in Europe for doctors to only have to study medicine and not religion. Mm-hmm. This was also during the Age of Enlightenment, where the concepts of departments or wards within hospitals also developed. Patients began to be differentiated between those with acute or less severe symptoms, as opposed to emergency symptoms, and then also by the type of condition they had. This is when we were seeing um, chronic illnesses in one area, intensive care, um, outpatient, that all developed in the Age of Enlightenment private hospitals um, with those funded by independent wealthy individual individuals um, began to appear in major cities such as London in the 18th and 19th century. Around this time, healthcare was not always easily accessible to the poor. So many wealthy individuals took it as their responsibility to build hospitals. This was before the idea of universal healthcare, um, which Mm -hmm. obviously exists in many places now, but did not at the time. Or universal healthcare that's not religiously tied like any catholic person could go to a catholic hospital but they have to be aware that their practices are deeply tied to the catholicism and therefore they're not going to be able to get the medical care that they need per se which i will get to um this in effect replaced the church as former patrons of hospitals in places where catholicism had already been removed private hospitals being the replacement it was during the 18th century as well that Europe began adopting something that was already practiced in the Middle East for centuries, which was making hospitals, teaching hospitals, as I mentioned before. So the Middle East had been doing this since the 8th or 9th century, and it took 900 years for Europe to start doing that.
1: I really need to stop every time you say this phrase teaching hospital I go,
0: oh, like Grey's Anatomy. Oh, I also, when I was reading this, I was like, like, Grey's Anatomy, because every two seconds in Grey's Anatomy, they go, this is a teaching hospital. It's like, okay, we're well aware <laughs> at this point. But
1: apparently they've been doing it for
0: hundreds of years. Right. Well, they've been doing it in, in the Middle East for hundreds of years. But I think that really shows how, like, close religious ties were in mm-hmm. Europe, that they were like, oh, we're a Catholic hospital. Like, we don't need education. We only need faith that it took until the 1700s. Mm-hmm. Um. hmm Practical anatomy was still rarely taught in medical colleges that were developing, even though this had been already been in the practice in practice in the Middle East for some time. Like we were just really slow on the uptake again, because like we were, or not we, because I wasn't there, but (laughs) like Europeans and our European ancestors were like. Twists, Sarah is immortal. (laughs) But I really, it doesn't, it never didn't say this anywhere that I was reading about this. But I do think it was kind of racially based that they didn't trust the Southeast southeastern ethnic people Mm -hmm. to actually you know know what they were talking about they were like well we're we believe in god so we have everything we need like i believe that's the influence there but it was during the crimean war that florence nightingale (laughs) who i know very little about but every time i hear about her i'm like i think we like her she could have been racist you know like i don't know (laughs) But I'm, appreciate, I'm appreciative of her because she wrote her influential book, Notes on Nursing, that helped develop nursing into a profession in Europe. She mm-hmm. utilized money raised to establish a training school at St. Thomas's Hospital in London, um, which made that the first hospital to formally train nurses. I think in the uh. world. The Roman Catholic Church is still the largest non-government provider of health care in the world. It has 18,000 clinics, 16,000 homes for the elderly and those with special needs, 5,500 hospitals, and 65% of those are located in developing countries. The Catholic Church is the largest private provider of healthcare in the United States. The church has carried a disproportionate number of poor and uninsured patients at its facilities, and the American bishops first called for universal healthcare in America in 1919. They're, really, they're actually a really big proponent of universal health care. But again, I'm going to talk about why that's not as, as good as it seems. In 2012, the Catholic Church operated 12.6% of hospitals in the U.S., accounting for 15.6% of all admissions and around 14.5% of hospital expenses, which 14.5% of hospital expenses in America in 2012 was still $98.6 billion. That's 14%. insane roman catholic medical facilities refuse treatment which run counter to their beliefs a big example and a big one is contraception is a treatment that is not provided and complications due to existing contraception may not be treated over the past several years a wave of proposed and completed mergers between secular roman catholic hospitals um secular and roman catholic hospitals have increased the numbers of americans who will have to rely on a religious hospital for their health care this is an issue because hospitals are barred by church doctrine from performing many procedures this means putting at risk um individuals health um and it also endangers the health of society generally um Mm -hmm. so again like a secular church that merges with a religious church that secular church now has to follow the that church's doctrine. Catholic healthcare providers are bound by the Ethical and Religious Directives for Catholic Healthcare Service, which is a document that was issued by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, and that governs how their healthcare providers must handle a variety of issues. This document reads, quote, the professional-patient relationship is never separated then from the Catholic identity of the healthcare institution. Seattle Times columnist Danny Westerniat wrote, Quote, to get public funding, religious hospitals ought to be urged to abide by the public's healthcare principles as much as possible, not us by theirs. We'd never let schools be ruled by a church, no matter how well meaning. With our healthcare, we're halfway there. What he says by we'd never let the schools, like we'd never let public schools, like mm-hmm. we don't let public schools read the Bible. That certainly doesn't mean that that schools don't do it. I yeah. know for fact I knew people who, go, who went to school in the South and the Midwest, and they were like, yes. And it like no one reported on them because it was just accepted in their community. Yeah, Um, but ideally they are separate. And this kind of makes that separation wishy washy. So that's it about Catholic hospitals. Um, Protestant hospitals are not really a thing because Protestant hospitals really led the secular hospital movement. Now that certainly doesn't mean that hospitals like hospitals have, um, chapels and um a lot of hospitals have chaplains there um especially in intensive care units or hospice care um but those the important distinction is that catholic hospitals their medical practices are run by their religious doctrines. And the big, the, the best example that is most universally understood is contraception. There are other examples, of course. I don't know the nuances of the Catholic religion. I was not raised Catholic, so I wouldn't be able to mm. tell you how they treat other things differently. But contraception is a really huge one. Um, but it, a lot of people do choose to go to Catholic um, hospitals when they can because they provide a lot of free services to Catholic folk. Um, I'm going to briefly talk about, go ahead. I was just gonna say,
1: it's kind of a double-edged sword, no matter what religion is in charge, if that's the only option you have as an affordable option is, this one way of thinking in charge of all of it.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm going to briefly talk about Jewish hospitals. Mm -hmm. So according to a 2008 report, um, Jewish communities in 24 American cities founded hospitals in the late 19th and early 20th centuries to address an overwhelming need for the largely impoverished immigrant Jewish population at that time. That need was to provide medical services that weren't readily available elsewhere that didn't compromise on their religious beliefs um, and to provide work for a new generation of Jewish doctors who had come over from Europe but were not allowed to practice in other hospitals. Um, American Jewish hospitals were founded starting in 1854, and they served um, indigent Jews. Who, and part of the reason that these were built was to respond to anti-Semitism that was very rampant in the U.S. I'm not saying that it wasn't rampant. It's not. It's not a problem now, but it was especially large when um, Jews made up a very huge portion of the immigrant communities that were coming over at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, So they created opportunities for graduate medical education and medical practice. Um, They also wanted to provide culturally sensitive care to observant Jews and fulfill a religious commitment to healing that I do think is universally religiously valuable. Um, Those values are just exercised in different ways which is why it was important for jews to create their own hospitals jewish hospitals were governed administered staffed and philanthropically supported predominantly by jewish communities it was a very um community-centered and not mm-hmm. they didn't receive a lot of help from outsiders um the american jewish community felt that by creating their own hospitals they could spare the the indignity of Christian attempts to convert them um, as they lay on their deathbeds. So this was a really mm. huge problem that they wouldn't treat them unless they converted or that if they were in a Catholic hospital, there would be pressure to convert even as if they were dying, especially actually if they were dying, because they'd be like, you need to convert now so that you go to heaven. Um, there was, which was a huge problem. Jewish hospitals were also um, refuges that am I saying that right? refuges, it's a a plural, um, that respected the faith of American Jews. So they would provide kosher food, an on-site synagogue, the comfort of a rabbi on the staff, um, and a mezuzah on the doorpost, something that they would never get at even a secular hospital, let alone a Catholic hospital. Um, Also because traditional Jewish teaching um, takes has a very specific view on autopsy. Jewish hospitals were also created Mm -hmm. to reduce autopsies perceived as unnecessary. Um, Jews believe that you have to have your full body in the ground in order to like pass on to the afterlife. Um, So that's why Jewish hospitals were created. Jewish hospitals are something, I don't know about their prevalence outside of Europe. Um, At the time, at most, there were 113 Jewish hospitals in america now i think there's like five left mm-hmm. um mount sinai i believe did start as a jewish hospital and now it's a secular hospital but its name is a of religious connotation i think similarly um saint luke's and like any hospital you know of that's like a big chain that's saint something yeah. um, i think began as a catholic hospital but some of them again there have been mergers and they've become like government and public hospitals as well but that is all about hospitals' association with religion. Oh. Thank you. You're I was like,
1: go back as far as it did.
0: Yeah, I was really sure. surprised. When they were, like, surprised, Mesopotamia had hospitals. I was like, I should have known. They had I it all. Like, I, Jeez, like, every time we mention
1: Mesopotamia, we should, like, do something. Like,
0: take a shot? I don't know. The Mesopotamia dance. like. The Mesopotamia dance. Mesopotamia and, and Egypt, they come up a lot. And uh, 1969. <gasps> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would be like a like good band
1: name, Mesopotamia 1969.
0: <laughs> that would be a good band name. I don't think anybody would get it. They'd be like, what does this have to do with literally <laughs> anything?
1: There's so many band names that nobody gets. Don't. That's not a deterrent. It's true. That's I recently true. saw a tweet that was like, no one ever told me that the Beatles is a pun. What, the the... <gasps>
0: <laughs> <laughs> what?
1: And I What's was that? like, how dare you? <laughs> how dare nobody ever tell me this? I don't think people, I think they just think that it, it's a bug,
0: and it probably is. I don't even. I mean, I, that's I not just... how you spell beetle the bug. No, that's not how you spell beetle the bug, but like, wow. Oh, wow. What a time. What a time. All right. Well, on that note, thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at YKWIBW Podcast. You can check out our website, I'veBeenWondering.com. We post um, lots of info and extra stuff about each episode. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us on the link directly in this bio of this episode in our show notes, or you can consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. Very, very helpful. And finally, if you have something that you've been wondering, you can email us at I've been wondering podcast at gmail.com and we'd love to put it on our show. Sarah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that was cute. She, like, left the screen for a second and then, as I said her name, she slid back into the frame. <laughs> Me sliding into your DMs. <laughs> Sarah, do you know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering? <laughs> I've been wondering about the legality of business owners denying service to people for religious, political, mm, ethical mm-hmm. reasons, like what's, mm-hmm. what's the precedence? What's in the laws? Mm, what does our constitution yeah. actually support?
0: Ooh, I love when you ask me about the constitution. <laughs> <laughs> it gets me excited Let's unpack that. I'm jazzed. Okay, okay, okay. Jane, you know what I've been wondering? what have you been wondering sarah this has literally nothing to do with that a few weeks right. ago back when you were still with me when you were still here <laughs> it sound like when, I died. You were, when you were mine um <laughs> um we talked about something we should, when i was talking about australia um <laughs> the hms bounty came up <gasps> you said that you know some stuff about that i want you to talk about the mutiny on the HMS bounty. A oh, movie yeah. i never watched <laughs> at an event I know nothing about. <laughs>
1: great, great, great. Woo-hoo.
0: Yay. Naval drama. Yeah. Oh, I should watch that Tom Hanks movie. I'm gonna go watch that Tom Hanks movie now. Greyhound, it looks good.
1: Oh. <laughs> I'm excited.
0: It's like the I'm the Captain now one. What was that one called? I, Captain Phillips. <laughs> Captain <laughs> That's a really good movie. I love Captain Phillips. You should also watch Sully. It's really good. I love Tom Hanks. <laughs> no bad movies. <laughs> All right. (laughs) That is everything. Thank you so much for listening. This is You Know When I've Been Wondering.